Welcome to the show, Carol. I am so happy to have you on the Morphous for Menopause podcast and on our YouTube channel. Well, I am so happy to be here. I um, get to talk about my favorite topic, vinegar, and um, it's just very exciting. Thank you so much. So what I'd like to do is start by having you talk about who you are and also what your passion is and what your research has been on. Well, I'm a professor. I've been a professor for years at Arizona State University, and my job responsibilities obviously include teaching, but research is a very important part of my job. And um, I have a wonderful clinical laboratory in the downtown Phoenix area, um, you know, right next to Arizona State University. And it's, it's a beautiful lab space. It, it sees participants. And so participants come in and we run different types of dietary trials. And my research in the recent years has focused on simple diet strategies because I learned over the years of conducting um, diet trials with human subjects that they don't like to make major changes to their diets. I can feed them many types of diets. I can feed them low calorie diets, um, high protein diets, um, high vitamin C diets, but they can't do this at home. They or they don't have the desire to do it at home to, to actually change how they cook and prepare their meals. And so I, I don't think that these are great strategies to tell people you need to follow a Mediterranean diet or you need to follow the zone diet because it's so, it's so hard for most people to do this at home. And so I sort of evolved my research to these simple strategies, something that you can do without a lot of training or a lot of purchasing going to the grocery store and purchasing foods that you're not used to purchasing and then you don't know how to cook them. And, and, you know, people have these dietary habits they get into. And if we can just tweak them slowly, like to, towards a more healthful type of diet, I think that's a better strategy than, than changing everything at once. And so that is, that's sort of what led me to this vinegar work is because it's a, it's a very simple diet strategy. I love that. And I think giving people, making it easier for people is really the key because you're right. Compliance is a hard thing, especially when it becomes too complex. So you, I, I do want to be very clear. So when you say you're running trials, these are clinical trials. Can you just go a little bit into the science so people understand exactly where you're coming from? Well, a clinical trial is defined as you are you are conducting inter, an intervention. So an intervention is you're manipulating something. And so let's say we want to test um, we want to test the zone diet. Okay. Okay. Well, we're we're manipulating the amount of protein and carbohydrate in the diet. And so we're feeding we're feeding people. Some some of the participants are getting this zone diet. And the other participants are getting the typical American diet, which is not high protein. And so we're manipulating some of the macronutrients, some of the nutrients in the diet. And then we, we, we um, conduct the trial for a period of weeks. It could be eight weeks. It could be 12 weeks. It could be longer. Um, and then we look to see health differences between the groups. So we might collect blood samples or we might ask questions. There's, there's ways of getting answers just by asking questions. You know, how was your sleep last night? Or um, we can put pedometers on them. You know, we can, we can put these wearable devices on them and collect information on how their, their lifestyle might have changed. And then at the end of the study, we have all this numerical data 
numbers. We have blood numbers of blood metabolites, or we have exercise activity numbers. And so we can statistically look at these numbers between the groups and see how they changed over time to demonstrate that we have a significant health improvement based on these numbers. So a clinical trial is is where you are trying to improve a health parameter by either a supplement, a particular diet, or some other strategy like that. So who would fund, for example, and you don't have to answer this if it's proprietary information, but like, so for example, in your lab, who is funding these trials? Are these are these companies, like who wants to understand, for example, does the Mediterranean diet work? Right. So there's, that's a great question because this costs money. <laughs> so that, that's a great question. So some of my research is funded by industry. Sometimes it's found, funded by a foundation. There is federal grant money. And so when people, if people are interested to see how a study is funded, which I think is, is, is important in the paper that's published, Okay, so you can see all of my papers, you know, you just Google Johnston and the zone diet or whatever, and my papers will come up and you can see in the papers, the funding source is always listed. Obviously, uh, Morphous for Menopause is about women in perimenopause and menopause. And we know as we go into this phase of life, you know, regulating blood sugar, insulin resistance plays a massive role. Start by defining what that is and then how vinegar plays a role in the research that you've done. Okay. So as young, healthy people, our blood, our blood glucose or blood sugar level is, is tightly controlled because we have hormones that help keep these in check. So every time you eat a meal, your blood glucose is going to go up because all the glucose that's in the meal and the glucose is coming from starch. It's coming from breads and pastas and rice. For the most part, you have a little bit of glucose in fruits and vegetables, but most of your glucose is coming from a, a bread a bread source or a, a cereal source. And, and so it's going to happen <laughs> when you eat a meal, you're going to have a rise in blood sugar. Well, your body recognizes that immediately and it will secrete insulin and insulin will drive that glucose into a cell because in the bloodstream, that glucose doesn't do us any good. The, the bloodstream is just like a highway. It just is a transport, place to transport things. You don't want glucose to build up in your bloodstream because it will damage the, the vessel walls. And that's what leads to heart disease and all the complications of diabetes is that irritating glucose in the bloodstream. And so the insulin takes it into the cell. And once in the cell, the body can process it rapidly. It can use it for energy. It can store it as fat for later energy use. And so once in the cell, the glucose is not a problem. It's a problem when it's in the bloodstream. So if anything impairs your insulin, okay, then you're going to have a problem. And so as we age, just like, just like you can imagine, things don't work as well because they're getting older. Well, your organs are getting older and they don't, they don't quite function as well. So there's, there's always this little bit of decline as you age. But that can also be accelerated. And there, if you're practicing certain lifestyles, like if you allow your body weight to get too high, obesity can interfere with the function of insulin. Okay. And, and there's, other, there's other conditions um, and drugs that you might be on that can affect insulin function. But most, most of what's happening probably in the U.S. is we're our weight. 
You know, we tend to be, we tend to be a little overweight and that's going to impact the insulin. We tend to eat probably more calories than we need. And so there's a lot of glucose that has to be disposed of. Um, and so if the insulin isn't functioning well, that means the glucose stays in the bloodstream longer and, and it's going to cause irritation. And over time, that irritation leads to physical consequences. And, and again, it's, those are usually the symptoms you see with diabetes. And it also creates um, the plaque. It, it can lead to plaque development, which is heart disease. And wouldn't that also lead to something with, we're calling now type three diabetes, which is inflammation in the brain or some type of dementia? Well, yeah, inflammation, high blood sugar is a, is a source of inflammation. And inflammation is a whole nother scenario that creates problems itself. Right. right. And so if, if you, it's sort of like it snowballs. If, you, if your glucose is high chronically, it will instigate inflammation and then the inflammation ha- causes issues, right? And also, you know, in, especially in menopause and perimenopause, so many of us have sleep issues. And we know that when our, we're not regulating our blood sugar, that if our blood sugar goes too high or too low when we're sleeping, again, it can interrupt our sleep, cause us to go pee. Like there's so many other things that come into play, especially for those of us who are symptomatic. So, you know, as you're studying these diets, were there any diets, and I know you said there wasn't, you know, it's very hard for people to comply to specific diets, but were there any diets that were better options for regulating our, our glucose or our blood sugar than others that you've come across? Well, anytime you um, lower the carbohydrate content of your diet is going to be helpful. I mean, it just makes sense because the, the, the glucose that's in your bloodstream is coming from the diet. And so if you're eating a high carb diet, Okay, you're probably going to have more glucose entering in the bloodstream. So if you can adopt a diet that's lower in carbohydrate and higher in protein, you're going to be able to control your blood sugar levels better. And and that is exactly why I was studying high protein diets. I I was working um, with other investigators trying to understand how we can help people with diabetes. Um, and, and so we were looking at these diets. This is, this is a long time. This is 20 years ago. Okay. That I was doing this work. And so we're talking the 1990s, um, early two thousands, I was looking at these high protein diets. They were, they were becoming popular and, um, you know, there was a lot of controversy over their health impacts and, you know, you don't want to go too high on the protein and too low on the carb. And so, you know, Atkins is a very high protein or high fat, low carb, very low carb diet. Whereas the zone is a, is a low carb diet, but it's more moderately low. So I was real interested in those two diets because we know both diets lower glucose, but, but are there other health consequences? You don't want to lower glucose and then have another health consequence because the diet has other issues with it. So I was trying to explore, you know, how low do you need to go on the carbohydrate to have this benefit and so that's, that's where the, that, that research was going. And that's actually when I, I read this article that was very obscure, you know, people don't understand how we find articles, but we have certain, certain search engines that we use to find articles. And this article was not on any of these searches. It was very obscure. And I just happened across it and it talked about vinegar and rats. And, and they were getting the exact same response with the vinegar, without doing anything to the diet. In fact, the diet was was purposely unhealthy for these rats. 
Um, and they saw the same thing I was seeing with these making these major changes to people's diets. And so that's when I thought, oh, my gosh, this is very simple. And, you know, that's what started me down the road on the vinegar. Nobody had looked at it in diabetics. I was shocked because, you know, that's a, that was a clear next study to do. And this study was published in the 80s. And I found it in the in around the early 2000s. And so nobody had done anything for over 10 years. And I'm like, really? You know, this is really interesting. Somebody needs to look at it. And so I, I did it with diabetics and I saw, you know, a, a nice effect. That is super interesting. So just to be clear, so you came across this article that talked about vinegar and we're talking about vinegar in terms of helping to regulate blood sugar based on the diet that they were eating, correct? Correct. So you have to remember the sugar is coming from starches. Right. So the vinegar is going to help you when you're eating meals that have starch. If you're eating, you're eating a fried egg, you know, or you're, you're eating scrambled eggs and bacon, you don't need vinegar. There's no, there's not very much glucose in that. The glute, you need to be eating a regular type meal that most Americans are eating that has a bread in it or a pasta or a rice. And that's where the vinegar is helpful, but that's where you have the glucose as well. Now, I want to make it very clear that this doesn't mean you can have a crappy diet and eat vinegar. Okay. That's, that's what I'm trying. You, you want to always try to have the healthiest diet possible. Okay. But I mean, people like pasta. And so, you know, it's just, it's just nice that you can eat your pasta and not have to worry as much about the glucose. Okay, so let's delve in a little bit to how to use it and the dosages, right? Because I'm very big on understanding exact ways. And I know the people who are listening as well are be like, okay, tell me what I need to do. So for example, and I do want to go also talk a little bit more about the, the low um, carbohydrate diets. And because the Atkins and the zone were really have been replaced by paleo and keto diets, like now the newer forms. I remember years ago, I was doing the zone diet. And, you know, it, and it's so interesting because, certain diets, first of all, we're all, what works for me may not work for you and vice versa, which I know you would agree with. And everybody is so different. And nowadays with social media, there are so many people pushing, you should absolutely be keto keto if you're in menopause and perimenopause, or you should absolutely doing be doing this, or you should absolutely, you know, be doing this. And it's like, it's not the case because we're all so different. And like you said, the compliance comes into it as well. So I just want to understand from your clinical trials and, you know, because we want to understand how to eat, like, should we be eating low carbs? Should we be eating, you know, that like you're saying higher protein, how much carbs should we be eating? Let's talk about the vinegar and how it relates to that so that we can really truly understand the way we should be eating or what, what nutrition we should be getting on a regular basis. Okay. This is, this is how I usually view it. And for my own diet. Okay. And I'm a vegetarian by the way, which means I tend to eat higher carbs. Okay. I am vegetarian, but um, this is the way I, I explain things to people. Over since the 1980s, since maybe even the 1970s, we have started the eating larger and larger and larger portion sizes. And so I think I think the the best thing people can do is train their children properly on portion sizes. You could easily have have a pasta entree, eat some breadsticks, and be at eight servings of pasta. Of, of bread, you know, of grain. And that's, that's where the carbohydrates coming from. And so I think we need to understand serving sizes. You know, I'm a, I'm a fifties baby and my mom was a home ec major. And so my mom followed all the home ec stuff at home. She served things 
like a real serving was. And now our serving sizes, no one has a concept of what a serving size is anymore. And so I think that's one of our problems. Um, so if people would just understand serving sizes and go back to the old basic food groups, okay? Basic four food groups. Have you ever heard of the basic four? We have, we have dairy and meat and grains and fruits and vegetables. And, if, and it was two, two, four, four. So a base, the basis of a good diet is two servings of dairy, two servings of meat, four servings of grain, and four servings of fruits and vegetables. Okay, that is sort of the basis of a good diet. Now, if you're physically active, you might need to increase a little bit of the calories. And, you know, dietitians, that's what dietitians are for. You know, they help people understand that. But think about this. If, a, if, if you follow the basic diet, you should only have four servings of grain a day. And so that might be a slice of toast at breakfast. You know, maybe you have a sandwich at lunch. That's three. And at, at dinner, you can have your half cup of pasta. Okay, so I, I like to have people think about this. In terms of serving sizes, I, I hear in terms of serving. I mean, also, I, I live in Canada and it's been updated recently where they actually took dairy out of it, which is very interesting. Well, you know, and that's fine because the dairy can have the, the, the non-dairy replacements. Right. So you can have the almond milk or whatever. And so in the meat is the same thing. We have meat alternatives. So there are dairy alternatives and there are meat alternatives. And if people don't want to eat meat, which is me, you know, you just have to make sure you get the protein. The reason we had four food groups is because it was a simplistic way to get people to have enough of their vitamins and minerals and their protein and their carb. Because we, you can't tell people you need 65 grams of protein a day. Go to it. Right. Because people are going to be like, how much, 60, how does that work? Yeah. How do I get 60 grams of protein? But if you tell them two servings of meat and that a serving of meat is the size of your palm, and that's what you tell, you know, that's how dietitians work, you know, or it's a, it's a, it's the size of a, um, I happen to have a deck of cards here. It's the size of a deck of cards. And so people need, if people knew this and they, they knew that a deck of cards is a, is a serving size of meat. Well, you know, if you have this, steak on your plate, you can easily see that that's two or three servings because that deck of cards are in there. So people need to understand serving sizes and they need to understand the variety that you need to have. You need to have dairy because that's the calcium and it's also protein. It's also B vitamins. And then you have the meat because the meat is the iron, the zinc and the protein. Okay. So we don't have to tell people get your zinc. We just tell them have servings of meat a day. And then you have your grains. And it's interesting because really the only thing grains have in it are carbohydrates, but carbohydrates are very important and we fortify grains. So we have a lot of B vitamins and iron in grains that are it's complex. Before we fortified our food supply in the U.S., there were massive B, B deficiencies. Mm. So this whole, this, you know, we put it in grain and we tell people to eat the grain. But the car, they need the carbohydrate for energy as well. And then you have your fruits and vegetables. And of course, the fruits and vegetables have all the vitamins and many of the minerals as well. And so by telling people to eat dairy, meat, grains, and fruits and vegetables was a, was a way to get people to eat their zinc and their iron and their calcium and their vitamin D and their vitamin A without making it so complicated. I actually think it should be updated in terms of under, for people to understand because so many of us are not eating certain things nowadays, right? And it's like, oh, I don't eat the dairy or I don't eat this. And I'm not saying like, I'm lactose intolerant, I can eat dairy. So for me, but I think it would be really cool 
to actually, and I think I might even want to create that chart where it's like, okay, so this is what the food groups were telling it, but these are the minerals, the vitamins, the antioxidants, the fiber that were actually really the underlying, uh, you know, ideas. Yes, the underlying, yes. What we want you to so have. So if you're not going to eat dairy, you need to know where you're going to get your calcium. Calcium, right. Or where you're going to get your vitamin D. Because in the U.S., I, I'm, I'm, I honestly don't know how Canada does this, but in the U.S., we fortify our dairy with vitamin D. Yeah. And so, so, you know, if you're not going to eat dairy, then you need to know how to get those nutrients. And that's where supplements come into. I know we're not talking about supplements today, but something like a D. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about, you know, um, so we're talking about low carb and eating your fruits and vegetables and blood sugar. So like, for me, what, what I've learned so much over the last four and a half, five years, since I've been studying perimenopause and menopause and blood sugar is, you know, there's a lot of confusing information out there. And there's a lot of information of like, okay, don't eat your refined carbohydrates because that's, what's going to, you know, there's, there's the spike and how quickly is it going to spike our blood sugar? Make sure that you're eating complex carbohydrate because it has the fiber and the other vitamins and minerals that's not going to spike it as much. But then we've learned that everybody's so unique and different that even some people who are eating those complex carbohydrates, like for example, a sweet potato, it's still going to spike, spike your blood sugar pretty high, even if you're coupling it, let's say with a protein or if you're eating some fat with it. So what I want to understand really well from you and from all of your research that you've done, because you're an expert in this, is when it comes to spiking blood sugar, is it like we never want the blood sugar to spike? Is it, well, if it spikes, it's normal. It's going to go up to, let's say, you know, I, I, I speak in Canadian terms, so I'll look at it in terms of my conversion here. I have like my little, chart. <laughs> um, you know, is it that we never want it to spike or if it does spike, it should just spike and then come down within a regular amount of time. I think it would be great to have some clarity on this so that everybody who's listening can say, okay, well, I understand that if I'm going to have watermelon and watermelon is going to spike my blood sugar to over 180, then does it mean I shouldn't have watermelon or any other fruits? And, or it means I should be picking berries instead. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, you, you need carbohydrates. So it's not like you don't want to eat carbohydrate foods and fruits and vegetables are sort of, a, you know, free, you know, we sort of think of them, you know, you can eat, especially the vegetables because the vegetables tend to have a lot more fiber associated with them. And the fiber is going to help blunt the, the spike. If you're going to eat fruit, you should eat whole fruit. And, you know, this juicing craze is, you know, that I mean, it's fine, but people need to realize when you juice, if you take out the, the fiber, you know, the, the pectin stuff, if you're just drinking the, the watery, the juice portion, that is concentrated carbohydrate. And so that's where serving sizes become very important. So we go back to serving sizes. If you're going to have watermelon, have a serving of watermelon. Don't eat the whole watermelon. Um, because it's, it's both, it's both what you're eating and the amount you're eating. Okay. And, and juice, I, I just, I, th I, I would almost tell people try to avoid juice and eat the raw fruit because the raw fruit has a little bit of fiber in it. And you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to drink another. Okay. You probably know this. If you squeeze orange juice, you, you need three oranges to get you a glass of orange juice. You're not going to eat three oranges. You're going to eat one orange. So by squeezing it, now you're getting three times as much carbohydrate. And so, um, I mean, there's some, there's some great nutrients in oranges, but if you're concerned about the carbohydrates, you need to think about this. 
So Carol, I'm going to have, I want to have a little bit of fun right now because I'm going to show you, although it's fun for me and I'm hoping other people as well, is I normally wear a continuous glucose monitor, a CGM, and I don't have diabetes, but I do it for research because I really, like I said, I've been very passionate about understanding blood sugar. And especially as we get into perimenopause and menopause in terms of keeping it regulated. And that's why I would love to hear your opinion that you can share with our, with our audience. So here are some, here's an example of my blood sugar. So I do intermittent fasting. So here's an example of my blood sugar. You could see it's nice and steady from when I stopped eating dinner all the way through the next morning and even overnight. So nice, steady line. Would you agree that that's a nice, steady line? Right. Okay. But you're fasting. And so that's expected, right? I'm fasting. Exactly. So that the average there, well, again, the average there is probably about, it was about a hundred. That wasn't my first morning, but that was kind of the over the night. Was the and that's where these hormones are working. So if it, if it starts to get too low, you have glucagon. So you have insulin if it's too high and you have glucagon if it's too low. That's why it stays so nice and constant. Right. Okay. So now where we go into the next thing, because, and the reason I love wearing the CGM too, is because I experiment like crazy. So here's an example of something that I ate. So I love it's, you know, we just came out of summer, you know, amazing fruits, you know, I mean, we've got all the, you know, the yummy summer fruits and I actually have, I happen to love watermelon. So I'm just looking for that sheet. So here was an example that I decided to have some watermelon and my blood sugar. So I'm going to show you, hopefully you could see it spiked. So you could see, now this happened to be a day where my, so we're going to get into that. So you could see, I kind of, I had something here, probably a shake. And then it literally went up to the 190, 196. If you're from Canada, it's, but that's over 10, which is extremely high. Then you could see what happened is my blood sugar, the rest of the day was a mess through the night was all over the place. And even doing my fasting, you could see even that one huge massive spike completely affected my blood sugar for the rest of the day. So mm -hmm. here's where I would love your opinion in terms of, okay, how high is it? Like if it does go hot, that high and it does kind of mess things up, A, does it, is that the science there to support it? I'm an N of one and I do my own research to kind of understand it. And um, does that typically happen for people which causes a lot of these issues? And what could we do? Let's say, for example, if we do want enjoy more than a tiny piece of watermelon and we know it's going to spike our blood sugar, what could we do according to your research? Well, I, again, I think we come back to serving sizes because you probably did have a pretty good portion of watermelon to make the blood sugar go that high. Yep. Um, and so I think people, if they're, if they're, if this is a snack, because if you have a meal, there's other factors in that meal that are going to help with maintaining a lower glucose, because as you said, fiber. So if, if, if you haven't, if you're eating a meal and the watermelon is part of the meal, you're probably not going to see a spike like that because you're going to have um, delayed gastric emptying because it's a big meal. It has some fat in it, which delays gastric emptying. You're going to have some fiber in the meal and the fiber is like, it, it's like a little blockage in the small intestine and it will slow digestion. So when you eat a meal, you have a little bit of gastric delay. So the stomach empties a little bit slower because of the fat in the meal. And then you have fiber in the meal, which helps um, keep the digestion process a little, it slows it down a little bit. And so you're not going to see the spikes, but if you have it as a snack, you don't have all these other things in play. And so the stomach will empty immediately. Okay. Cause there's no fat to delay gastric emptying. And so it'll, it'll empty immediately. You have no fiber. There's very, you know, there's very little fiber in watermelon. And so you have very little fiber to help attenuate that spike. And so you get the spike. And so people just need to be aware of that. 
your, your, your spike came down. So your insulin is working fine. So that's good. Um, and so the harm, you know, the harm is probably much less. The harm would be for people whose insulin is not working well. They have insulin resistance because now they just put all this glucose in their bloodstream and the body can't get it out of the bloodstream. Your body was able to get it out pretty quickly. And so this is why it's real important for people to understand um, you know, where they are. And so how do you know where you are? Well, you can go, when you go to the doctor, they can run a fasting blood sugar. And if your fasting blood sugar is elevated, that means you probably, you probably have an issue with your insulin. And then you, you probably need to think strategically about how you eat because you could have had peanuts for a snack and that wouldn't have done anything with your blood sugar. And so maybe people in between meals when they don't have um, these other constituents to help attenuate the rise in the glucose, maybe they should eat peanuts or almonds, something that won't spike their blood sugar. And there are so many nutritional benefits of eating nuts on a daily basis. And so maybe the, the watermelon should be saved for dessert because it, 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 these other factors that are in the meal will help attenuate some of that spike. And of course, the vinegar, that's what the vinegar does. And so I, I don't think you'd want to be drinking vinegar every time you have a snack. Okay, that just that doesn't seem like that would be like fun to do. But, but when you sit down to dinner, you can easily have a cup of diluted vinegar. And so the, the protocol is when you sit down to dinner, you know, you have your glass of water you know, for your meal, I mean, most, most people drink water with their meal. Well, you put a teaspoon or two, one to two teaspoons of vinegar, actually tablespoons, sorry, one to two tablespoons of vinegar into that glass of water. So I'm talking eight, 12 ounces of water. You put a tablespoon of vinegar in that. And then when you start eating the meal, drink, drink that cup of water. So you drink, you drink the water pretty quickly at the start of the meal but you want to drink it with the other food because vinegar is very acidic. That's why you dilute it. You don't ever drink vinegar. You don't shoot it. You know, you don't, because that's, that's going to, eventually that's going to probably damage your esophagus. It's probably going to erode the enamel on your teeth as well. And so you want to dilute the vinegar and you want to eat it with bites of a meal because the bites of the meal will help wash it down and, and keep it off of the esophagus wall. And so that's how we do it. And so within the first five bites of the meal, hopefully you can drink your cup of diluted vinegar. And now the vinegar is in your stomach and it will, it will, um, it will get to your small intestine ahead of most of the food. Because in the small intestine is where we, we think the vinegar is working. And so if the vinegar can be in the small intestine before most of the food gets there, it can help stop some of this digestion of the starch. The vinegar, what it has in, what it, what the active piece is the acetic acid. Okay, so people probably have never heard of acetic acid, but it's not in our food. Okay, so to, to, to drink vinegar is, is providing your body with a chemical that it normally doesn't see. Okay, it's really only in the vinegar. But if you eat a lot of fiber, in the gut, that fiber is fermented to acetic acid. Mm. So right there, you know, acetic acid is going to be beneficial because we know how beneficial fiber is. Right. Fiber 
is beneficial in so many ways. And, and, you know, now they're exploring the gut microbiome and, you know, if you have the right bacteria, um, you know, if you have the good bacteria, you ferment your fiber to good constituents, but if you have the bad bacteria, you don't have the good, the good production of these chemicals that are helpful. And so it's very interesting because you could get your acetic acid by eating a lot of fiber. And we already know fiber is hugely beneficial, but now you're sort of like, you're, you're sort of like complimenting this, but, you know, we want you to eat a lot of fiber. Okay. There's other things in fiber other than production of acetic acid. So you always want to eat fiber, but, but it's just so interesting that you can sort of, you can sort of supplement the amount of acetic acid that your body can assimilate and do healthful things. And so, one of the things that this acetic acid does is it blocks the enzyme that digests starch. Hmm. So it doesn't block it a hundred percent. Okay. It's not like that, but it seems to, it seems to slow the digestive process anywhere from 20 to 40%. So you get 20 to 40% less glucose in the bloodstream. Right. Reduction. So, keeps so you know, maybe if you're a young, healthy child, this is not a big deal. Okay. But if you are one of these, overweight children that, that are pre-diabetic, you know, maybe it would help that child. Or if you're an older adult who's overweight with pre-diabetes, you know, the vinegar, you know, may help. But as you said, different people respond differently, but every trial that's been conducted has seen this effect. And so it helps most people. Okay. There might be some outliers out there that it doesn't seem to help, but it does help a majority of the people. And again, it's anywhere from 20 to 40%. And so that spike that you showed us, you would just reduce that by 20 to 40%. Interesting. So just to recap, so just so everybody is very clear. So in terms of, so if you want to have Again, according to the, the the actual serving. So, if you want a half a cup, and and of course, we don't want you to have refined carbohydrates because that'll have, be devoid of nutrition and as well as fiber. So, if you're going to have, and I, I, are we talking about complex carbohydrates here, just for clarity, like in terms, or you're talking about anything, any type of? Okay, so so that's a good that's a good point. If you if you're eating that this this the more spikier the the food. It causes your glucose, you know, the spikier, the more spike you get, the more the benefit of the vinegar. Okay. So if you're eating and you don't have money spikes, the vinegar probably is not going to be a lot, very helpful because you already don't have those spikes. But if you're eating foods that cause those spikes, and again, it probably is a little bit of an individual thing as well. Um, some people spike more than others because their, their, their metabolisms are different. And so, you know, we could have another person who's the same height and weight and everything as you, but they spike less or they spike more because their insulin works differently or something. And genetics, genetics play a huge genetics, Yeah. And so, but, but, you know, we've done enough studies that we show overall, overall, you do get this attenuation of the spike, but you're right. You want it. You want to consume fiber rich carbs as yeah. much as you can. But if you're eating bread, you know, and you're out, at, you're out eating, you're probably going to get refined pasta and you're probably going to get refined bread. Right. So it'd be harder to choose. So, so just so I don't forget, and I, I was going to show you another graph, what type of vinegar does it matter? So acetic acid is the defining ingredient of vinegar. So if it does not have acetic acid in it, it's not vinegar. So all vinegars contain acetic acid. 
But this is a good this is a good point because we have many different kinds of vinegars. So in the U.S., apple cider vinegar is very popular because we make we grow apples. We have lots of apples in the U.S. But if you go to the Mediterranean, they drink wine vinegars, you know, red wine, white wine vinegars because of all the grapes and stuff. And then you go to the Orient. They're drinking rice vinegars because they're fermenting rice because they have a lot of rice. And so if you go around the world, this is so interesting because every culture drinks vinegar has vinegar, every culture. I mean, don't, I mean, don't you think that's amazing that every culture around the world for the last thousands of years makes vinegar. It's just amazing. You know, in fact, I, I joke, I joke that the, maybe the, maybe the benefit of the Mediterranean diet is the fact that it's rich vinaigrette dressings. But, you know, you know, people have never studied that, but it could be that because they do drink more vinegar than Americans, because it's part of their it's part of that diet structure, the, the old Mediterranean diet. But the key here is any vinegar will do. So if you want to use a rice vinegar, you want to use a red wine or you want to use apple cider, they will all have this effect. But there may be added benefits of vinegars that we haven't explored yet. OK, I'm really I'm really one of the first people to do a lot of research on vinegar, but there's a lot of components of vinegar that are from the native source. And so if you are fermenting apples, you're going to have chemicals that are from apples in the vinegar. But if you're fermenting a grape, a red, a red grape, you're going to have you're going to have a red vinegar. And that means that you have all these phytochemicals that are from grapes that we already know are very beneficial. And so it could be that there are other benefits of vinegar that we haven't explored yet that are based on the original substrate or food that was fermented. Can you have too much vinegar? Yes, because it's an acid. In fact, if in fact, if you looked it up, vinegar is a poison because you can die from drinking too much vinegar. Wow. And so government regulates how much acetic acid is in the vinegar because you can ferment any level of, of acetic acid. In fact, in fact, people who've pickled, they know that if they buy the pickling vinegar, you're not supposed to drink that because it has a very high acidity level. Okay. So pickling vinegar is not drinking vinegar. Okay. But the vinegars that we put like in salad dressings and that we use in cooking they're, they're, they're the main, the ones that are sold mainly in the grocery stores will have usually in the U S it's a 5%. Okay. Pickling vinegars are like 15, 20%. Okay. You don't, you don't want to drink that. That's way too acidic, but 5% you can drink, but I don't recommend you drinking it straight. Cause if you dilute it, you know, you're going to, um, you know, you're going to dilute out the acid a little bit. And so it's not, you're not going to have as concentrated of an acid to hit your mucosa, you know, because as soon as that acid hits your mucosa, it's going to be a little irritating. So that's why you want to dilute it and you want to eat it with food. So you're mixing it up with these other constituents. So it doesn't have the opportunity to sit on your mucosa. Right. So, you know, people, so for those who are listening right now and are thinking, okay, well, I, two tablespoons in that cup of water, um, three times a day, is this something, and, and this is a great hack, which I think is really interesting. So if you wanna have your carbohydrates, but you're following a more low carb diet, but you're kind of in the mood for that because, you know, listen, I like my watermelon for dessert, right? So or I wanna have a sweet potato. For me, my blood sugar spikes like crazy, even when I'm eating with a protein, sweet potatoes, or even complex carbs. So for me, I have to- add the vinegar? 
So I'm going to try the vinegar. So I'm going to try. So I'm telling you, that's when we speak next time, I'm going to try the vinegar with my continuous glucose monitor and I'm going to see. So that's why I think it's a very interesting hack. So for those who want to try it, so two tablespoons in that, we said, I think it was 10 ounces. Yeah. I would start off with one tablespoon. Okay. So one tablespoon. We know one tablespoon has an effect. Okay. Well, let's start at one tablespoon and see how you like it. Don't go above two. Do not go above two tablespoons. And I wouldn't do more than twice a day. Okay. So that was my, yeah, that's my question. All of our studies are twice a day. And we see these beautiful benefits. We see them at one, one tablespoon and we see a little bit, a little bit higher benefit at two tablespoons. But it might be, you know, one tablespoon shows a benefit. So I want to make that very clear. It doesn't have to be two tablespoons to see the benefit. And we have not only seen that spike go down, we have seen fasting glucose go down. Amazing. So, you know, that's a, when you get up in the morning and they take your blood and they look at your sugar, you haven't eaten anything for like 12 hours. You know, we've noticed that that number goes down as well. That's excellent. So we now know that that number should be somewhere from 70 to 90. So, mm -hmm. and also if you're doing your A1C, you want that to be, you know, no, like I know now there are certain experts that are saying it really shouldn't be over 5.2. Like we start to see some inflammation over 5.2, but if you're 5.3, 5.4, like you're still in that zone, but higher, you kind of get into that, um, that zone. And, right. and just so for those of you who are watching, the A1C is the average of three months, blood sugar over three months. And we have seen decreases in A1C as well. So what kind of decreases, just if you can give us some numbers for an example. Well, you have to remember they have to be elevated. And so if you're not a diabetic or even, even pre people with pre-diabetes usually don't have really high A1Cs, you know, but people with diabetes do. And so, so you, you would have to have a population with, with higher A1Cs to see a decrease because we're not going to lower a normal A1C, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So, so we've seen, we've seen reductions that are similar to reductions, like with the oral pharmaceuticals. Amazing. Wow. There's, there's oral pharmaceuticals that people with diabetes um, are prescribed and we've had people on those pharmaceuticals and they still see a decrease when they take the vinegar. Wow. And decreases, if, if you put my study next to a study that used a pharmaceutical, you see almost the same reduction. Oh, wow. That is incredible. Yeah. I'm not saying I I'm not saying that vinegar is going to replace drugs at all. Of course not. Yeah, I understand. But it's a complementary strategy. You want to do you want to do what your doctor says. If he puts you, if he puts you on a, a medication, you need to be on that medication because they wouldn't put you on the medication unless they felt you needed it. And so, so if you want to try the vinegar, try the vinegar, make sure next time you go to the doctor, you tell the doctor that you're doing the vinegar and they can, they can do the test to see if maybe that you need less of the, the medication. And so, you know, that's something just to keep in the back of your mind. Is there, you know, can you send us your research? I'd love to put it below in uh, the comments on our Morphous, our podcast. If you're listening on our podcast and you want to actually see Carol and you want to see the charts that I showed, go over to our YouTube page where we're actually on video, but you can listen to the audio on our podcast, either works, but I'd like to put the links below to your research and that way people can print it off and bring it to their, you know, their doctors and show their doctors about what, you know, the research that you've done, because then I think they'd love to see the human clinicals. And I think that would be an important, powerful piece if they want to, you know, either lower it or speak to them of how they can manage their blood sugar better. So I will do that before the end of the day. 
Perfect. Thank you. I love it. Okay. Awesome. Is there any diet that you have seen? So I'm going to go back to, and I, I believe I asked this in the beginning that you believe is the best for regulating our blood sugar and let's say incorporating the vinegar in it. And if you've seen any vinegar that has the best effect, I know you said it's any vinegar, but you've mentioned so many different types of vinegar that are available for you personally. What do you like to use as the vinegar that has that amount of acetic acid that you've seen to work? So I know that it's two loaded questions, but I'd love your answers. So I think a diet that is low in processed foods. Okay. If you want to eat meat, I don't eat meat. I'm a vegetarian, but if you want to eat meat, I think that's fine. You want to try to pick the least processed meats, um, you know, and, and um, you know, not the fried and, and those types of meats, the smoked and all that, just, just real like unadulterated meat that you, 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 um, you know, put in the oven, you roast or something. Um, but I think, I think the less processed foods and that goes for, that goes for each of the categories. You know, it could be the least processed fruits and vegetables, the least processed grains, the least processed meats. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to dairy, you know, I guess, you know, the least, the least processed dairy, uh, you know, I think, I think that, that that's a big problem is the processing. Um, and then I think people need to follow serving sizes. And, and if you're, if you are overweight, you're probably not following the serving sizes and you, and you know, it, it, that it is hard. It's just like, it's really hard. That's why you want to train your kids young on what a serving size is, because if you train them young, they don't feel like they're being deprived as older, but an adult who's been raised on, well, a glass of milk is 16 ounces. Well, a glass of milk is a, a serving of milk is not 16 ounces, but if you've been raised like that, and you only get eight ounces, you're going to feel deprived. But if you raise your child using proper serving sizes, they're probably going to stick with that because they're going to, they're used to that. They're accustomed to that. Their stomach's accustomed to it. So when they get higher serving sizes, they're not going to eat it all. Okay. So I think, I think that that's my, my, my take on a healthy diet is the least processed diet following the serving sizes. So eat the foods you like. Um, but hopefully, you know, those are, you know, if they're highly processed, you should eat those minimally. Don't eat those every day. Um, eat those on special occasions. And then your daily diet would be the, the, the unrefined, follow the serving sizes, but eat all the different foods. And then the vinegar, I think this is really interesting because I'm sort of leaning towards red wine because not only does it have the acetic acid, it has all those phytochemicals that come from grapes. And we already know all the information like red wine. We know that there's that paradox, the French paradox. You know, what are, what are the French doing? This, and it's because they were drinking red wine. Well, that those same chemicals are in red wine vinegar. And so I, I think that the dark, rich red wine vinegar probably has benefits beyond just the acetic acid. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I love your research. I love what you looked into. I'm just going to do a quick recap just for those. Um, so we've, you know, the interview is um, great information and I want you to just correct me because I want to make sure if there's anything I don't get right. So at the end of the day, what we want to make sure of is that we're eating proper serving sizes and we should be eating our fruits and vegetables, our good fats, our lean meats, making sure we're getting our calcium. If you're around, um, you know, there are lots of foods. If you go to the Morphous Instagram, page and uh, we put a lot of graphics out about different sources of calcium that you can go. So making sure you're getting your calcium, making sure that you're getting nutritious foods, avoiding 
processed foods, ultra, ultra processed foods is really where it is, where it is. And when you're avoiding ultra processed foods, you're going to avoid a lot of the sugar and the, you know, the high fructose corn syrup and the trans fats yeah. and all of those bad ingredients that come along with it. And those simple carbohydrates. And then at the same time, as a hack, not as something we want to do, you know, three, four five times a day, but if you want to enjoy your complex carbohydrates, eat it with your meals, have your vinegar, one tablespoon is a good start. If you need to go up to two, if you feel something and it's not working, you can go up to two, but don't go, don't use it more than twice a day at that maximum. So maximum four tablespoons a day is really what we're looking at. You prefer red wine vinegar because it has all of those incredible other nutrients with it, but really any vinegar will have the acetic acid. Um, just to note, balsamic vinegar does have some sugar in it. So I would venture to guess maybe if you're going to have that, maybe just a little bit of that. If you're again, trying to manage your blood sugar and really trying to eat a diet that's going to keep your blood sugar as regulated as possible. But again, if you want to have something you want to enjoy your watermelon, don't eat the whole, you know, I probably ate like that. I ate a lot of it for sure. And I did it because I was testing, right? So I'm having fun, but yeah. And I, I make sure that I, um, I'm going to now do the test with the vinegar and, um, is it okay? So if somebody doesn't want to put, let's say a table, tablespoon of vinegar in their cup of water, can they use that on their salads? Would it work the same way if they're putting it into their salad? Mm -hmm. The thing is you would, you would want to eat the salad first thing, first. first thing for the meal. And you might have to drink. You might have, because if, if all the vinegar goes down to the bottom of the bowl, yeah. you might have to drink the dressing. The rest of the dressing is at the bottom of the bowl. Yes. What I like to do, I have to tell you. <laughs> Exactly. A lot of people don't though, but you don't want to leave the vinegar sitting at the bottom of the salad bowl. And you don't want to be, I guess, and then I guess if you could dip your like your high fiber bread into it, I'm just kidding. Depending well, that's what they do. If you go to the Mediterranean, what that's what they serve with the bread. They serve a little plate of vinegar and oil. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. You can, you can sop up the vinegar with your bread. That's another way to do it. Yes. There you go. But portion. We even have seen the same benefit with mustard. Because the main ingredient in mustard is vinegar. So if you're eating like a sub sandwich, pile on the mustard. You mean the straight up yellow mustard? Yes. That, and that's what you're using in your studies? Yeah, we just use the stuff, the stuff that everybody buys. The popular yellow mustard, you know, French's, I think it is. The popular, that's amazing. Wow. And, and, but it's if you look at the ingredient, the main ingredient is vinegar. So a tablespoon of the mustard, just to be clear mm -hmm. on the dosage. So a tablespoon of the mustard. Well, if you're making a sandwich, pile it on. Just oh, pile it on. Instead, I do. Of, I love it. instead of mayonnaise or ketchup. Ketchup also has vinegar in it, but it has sugar. Yeah. So you want but to do it sugar-free. Mustard has the vinegar, but no sugar. Well, this has been very informative, Carol. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the research you're doing and us menopausal and perimenopausal women, thank you as well. We appreciate everything that you're doing. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. I hope it was helpful. 